And as we've been going through the book of Esther, um, the theme uh, that we're looking at, we're calling this, uh, Where is God? It's the only book of the Bible where God is not mentioned. And uh, it even directly, prayer is not mentioned. Um, the law of God is not mentioned. Um, uh, it's implied in a couple places, and of course, God's hand is all over it. And, uh, and a good lesson to pull from that is, uh, is, is uh, just because God isn't mentioned or God is not seen uh, does not mean he's not doing something, he's not active. And many times in our lives, we might feel, you know, God's been a little quiet. Uh, where is he? And, um, and a wonderful story in Esther as we look at this, and really... If you think about it, undeserving people for God to save because uh, they're in violation of God. Uh, 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 the prophets had said when the captivity is over, return back home. And these are ones that decided to stay there in, um, uh, in, in the area and really in all of the, the Persian Empire. And uh, under King Xerxes, he's known by in, uh, in history. And, and uh, so here in chapter 4, Look at, uh, look at verse number one. We'll, we'll just read the first couple of verses here. Um, uh, more, uh, uh, Esther 4, verse number one. It says, When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. And came even before the king's gate, and for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was a great, great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told her that uh, then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai, and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. And uh, this morning we're going to talk about the difference one person can make. And that's how we're going to pray. Our Father, I ask that you'd help us uh, as we look to your word. Thank you for what we've looked at already in the book of Esther. And uh, Father, I pray that you, not only we'd see your hand in this, uh, this historical event, but we'd see parallels in our own lives. Lord, uh, the, uh, the, the things that you might do with some folks that, uh, that would, would be willing to take a stand for you, a stand for what's right. I pray that you help us now in these next few moments. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, as we look at this, we look at Mordecai, we look at Esther, and we think, wow, these, these uh, folks are courageous. They're willing to take a stand. But sometimes if we're not careful, we look uh, at the Bible as a series of stories of heroes. Um, we look at uh, people like, like David, a valiant man. He was willing to stand up. God's honor was at stake. The giant Goliath was out there. Uh, basically cursing God, and uh, you know, is there not a cause? And he stood up and he said, someone's got to take a stand. And we see that, wow, that's heroic. That's a wonderful thing. We think of Moses, the, the hero that led Israel uh, out of uh, bondage into the, you know, into the wilderness, crossed that Red Sea, and, and no doubt a champion. There. We think of Samson, the champion against the Philistines, and, and uh, took on all of them. We, we look at these people, and I'm not saying we shouldn't emulate Bible characters, uh, or see them even as heroes. In fact, the Bible says in James 5, uh, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. And James 5 says we should look at those as examples for our own lives. Um, 
1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells the church uh, at Corinth, he says, follow me even as I follow Christ. And, and we should follow good godly examples. We should see people like that. But, but when we look at this, we're not careful. Uh, we, we, we start to look at uh, people in the Bible as heroes. And I just want to say, human beings really are not the heroes of the Bible. Uh, the hero of the Bible is God himself. And, uh, and, and if we're not careful, we look at these as heroes and we think, well, they're super Christians or they're super, uh, uh, you know, had super faith and all this. And really, there were people just like you and me. They were uh, normal people. They God. And, and God's really the hero. God's the one that carries us along. And, you know, and that's what we find in the book of Esther. By the way, God is everywhere in the book of Esther, though he's not mentioned. And uh, that's the, really the big takeaway as we consider that. But, um, but when we consider this, who's the hero of the book of Esther? It's God, the, the unmentioned one, the unsung hero, really. Um, but here's the wonderful thing is that God uses people like us. Just to kind of recap the book of Esther where we're at so far. Things have uh, ramped up rather quickly. Uh, we have Mordecai. We're introduced to Mordecai. He's a, he's a Jew. He's a, a government, probably a mid-level government official. He sat in the king's gate. He was one that would be very present. He's one that would pass all the security clearances to work in the palace there or work in the king's gate. And um, keeping in mind, this was the king of, uh, really, of the known world. 127 provinces in the Persian Empire. If you were to look at a map, I mean, it spanned pretty far, uh, further than the Roman Empire. And um, they pretty much conquered everybody except Greece. Uh, Xerxes, if you're familiar in history, he was, had a title. He was called the King of Kings. And very proud man, uh, a man that wanted pretty much to be worshipped by the people. And, uh, and, and it's under his leadership, under his rule, that Mordecai was a government official. And, and at one point, he even... He even uh, foiled a plot, a conspiracy, to kill the king. He reported it, and they caught the guys, and, and so forth. And then we're introduced to a new character, uh, uh, the villain of the story, if you would, a man named Haman. Haman is promoted, really, number two in the kingdom. He's given the king's signet, the ring, that basically any law, any rule that has a, uh, that stamp, if you would, from the king, it's as though it's a decree from the king. And the king made a rule. By the way, Haman was an Agagite, the Bible tells us, and most believe that that's a descendant of the Amalekites. And he hates the Jews. Uh, prior to uh, it being pointed out to him, he didn't know Mordecai was a Jew. Uh, but the king had commanded everyone to bow down to Haman. And as he'd come to town, or go through the gate, everyone there at the gate would bow down. And, and, uh, and apparently there were so many there, they're all bowing down except Mordecai. And for a while this goes unnoticed. And every day, his co-workers start asking him, you know, what are you doing, Mordecai? You go down. Don't you understand? You're breaking the king's law. You're breaking the, uh, the, the, this command. And, and, uh, and keeping in mind, this was not, uh, they didn't have a law system like ours where you're going to have your day in court. You're going to have uh, good, uh, uh, you know, uh, lawyers and all this stuff. No, if the king wants you dead, you're dead. <laughs> and uh, you're breaking the king's law. These are some high stakes. And so day by day, they, they, they were talking to him about this, and finally he reveals that he's a Jew. He's a, he's a child of God. He fears God. And he can't in good conscience bow down to one of these, an enemy of God's people. And, uh, and so the news eventually gets back to Haman. Some of his co-workers, if you would, would go to Haman, and they said, uh, 
you know, hey, just want to clarify, is it true that everyone's supposed to bow down? Because there's this other guy, that, he's not bowing down. So he's, uh, he's enraged, and uh, by the way, his problem's not really just with Mordecai. Mordecai was like a representative of the greater hatred that he had for the Jews, and it turns out he was a Jew. But he had a hatred for the Jews, and that's, that's, uh, that's kind of what we see there. And uh, So what does Mordecai do? Or, or as this, this unfolds, uh, the, the, um, uh, Haman goes before the king, and he tells the king, he kind of embellishes a little bit, he says, hey, uh, there is a group of people in the kingdom that uh, they don't follow our customs. They have their own set of laws. They're, they're, they're a threat to the kingdom and, and really, uh, 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 you know, an anti-Semite to the extreme. And he says, you know, we need to exterminate these people. And so he convinces the king to send this decree to all the 127 provinces that on a, on a certain day of a certain month, every Jew could be killed. And here's the incentive. If you kill a Jew, you get to keep all their stuff. So now it's a free-for-all for, uh, for, the, for the kingdom that uh, on that certain day when, the, when they get the green light to go, uh, I'm sure uh, from that point on they're going to start kind of eyeballing the different Jews and which family should I go after, <laughs> whose stuff can I get. I mean, just think about this, uh, uh, what was going through the minds maybe of those in the, in the kingdom. And so, so there's basically a death warrant out for all the Jews. In 12 months, they're all going to die. So Mordecai, what does he do? He begins to mourn publicly, and that's what we see there in the first couple of verses. It says that he put on, he rent his clothes and he put on sackcloth with ashes and he went in the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. He, his mourn, he did this publicly. It's, uh, it's visible how sad he was, this, this mourning that he did. He, he did it visibly, he did it vocally. He, he cried aloud. He, people heard this cry. Uh, he went out there and he was crying out, Oh, woe is me! Woe are my people! And, and I mean, he's out there in a very public setting. He goes out in a public place in the midst of the city, it says. This was visible, it was vocal, it was also a violation. It was unlawful. Look at verse 2. It says, And it came, uh, and came before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. He comes there right at the gate, mourning in the sackcloth. And, uh, and there was actually a rule, a law, you don't enter in there in sackcloth. Um, this is a happy place. <laughs> this is a place where, you know, uh, imagine it being dressed like a bum trying to get into the White House, right? Well, now multiply that, right? Everything in this kingdom was all about aesthetics. Uh, uh, the, this king of kings, as he called himself, as those uh, others would call him, loved the gold, loved the lavish lifestyle, loved all these things. And so you're not going to have somebody come in there with sackcloth. He'll be escorted out quickly. You're, you're, you're putting a damper on, on the king's style, so to speak. And that's kind of what's going on there. And so, so this morning was so extreme that Mordecai, he's, getting, he's putting it out there. That I'm, you know, I'm troubled about this. He, again, being a public official, being one that, that served the kingdom. And not only him, but all the Jews of the provinces are mourning and weeping. Verse 3, In every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. By the way, nothing had happened yet at this point. No Jews have died yet at this point. But just at the news of this, and just, just at this decree being sent out, this was the response 
of God's people, of the Jews. Now, what's interesting about this, the Jews that are affected are Jews that weren't obeying God. As I mentioned earlier, the prophet said, hey, you're going to be taken, and uh, when the captivity is over, come back to Jerusalem. They stayed. They stayed in the provinces, and uh, they had not returned to their land when they were given the opportunity. And, uh, and so, really, when you, when you look at it, these were Jews that had become, not only disobeying God, but they become rather materialistic. There's something that kept them there in the kingdom. There's something that kept them drawn there rather than going back to the city of God, rather than going back to the temple of God, rather than going back to, to where they would worship and be with other, other uh, Jews, so to speak. And, and what's interesting about this, though, is now suffering is causing them to unify. Suffering is causing them to be humble. That's the idea of sackcloth and ashes. That's the idea of fasting. It's lowering oneself. And uh, the Jews are now mourning. Mordecai is mourning. Here's the interesting thing. Esther knows nothing about it. She's in her own little bubble. She doesn't know what's going on. She, she, she gets a report from the chamberlain, her personal assistants. The, the chamberlain, that, that was a house manager. And then she had her maidens. These were her, her personal servants. And they're out and about. They're doing their business. And they come across Mordecai uh, making a spectacle of himself. He's in sackcloth. He's in ashes. Maybe he's on the ground. And he's crying out right, at, right there at the gate. And uh, right there in the, the marketplace, so to speak. And... and um, and, uh, you know, they come back, and uh, here's the report they give. Hey, you know, Mordecai, your, your foster father, your, your cousin that raised you, uh, he's out in the middle of the street. <laughs> he's weeping, and he's crying out, and he's, he's making a spectacle of himself. And so Esther responds. And the process by which God used uh, this one life to make a difference, he takes Esther through this. And Esther really wasn't ready for this role in the beginning of Esther 4. Of chapter 4. But by the end of chapter 4, God takes her through a process to where she's really ready to put all on the line, to be a willing vessel to be used of God for the deliverance of his people. And I'm kind of giving, giving a lot of the background here, but, uh, but notice the thing, uh, uh, just a couple of observations um, here. First of all, she doesn't properly perceive the problem. Look at verse number 4. So Esther's maids and her chamberlain came and told her, then was the queen, that's Esther, exceedingly grieved. And she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. And so she really has no clue what's going on, what the problem is. She knows nothing about this order, this decree that was sent out. Uh, all she knows is that Mordecai is really, really sad about something. And the problem, here, here's the reality, the problem was bigger than she thought it would be. The problem is bigger than she initially perceived it to be. She knew he was upset about something, and people, you know, people in the Bible, the Jews in particular, they're mourned for a lot of reasons. If you lost a loved one, you'd, they'd spend time in mourning. They might even put on sackcloth and ashes, and, and it was a very uh, outward thing, and, and it, was a, it was somewhat of a, even a ritual that carried on uh, even into the first century uh, to the point where when someone would die, sometimes you'd even pay mourners to come and mourn for your loved one. And it, it's, it's the idea of the more mourners that are there, uh, you're kind of showing, giving honor, saying how great of a person it was or how much you're honoring that deceased person. So there'd be professional mourners that you can hire to show up at your funeral. And, uh, uh, you know, I've thought about that sometimes. I wonder if anyone would show up to mine, maybe send out some checks and just say, hey, if something happens to me, show up. I want people to know I was loved, okay? And, uh, but uh, but the, 
that would be one reason. It was very outward, you know, a little different from our culture. What do we typically do? We might, we'll dress in black. We'll kind of show, it's a little bit more, it's a reverence thing, but, but you might, uh, a lady might wear a veil, you know, to kind of maybe cover uh, the, the, the mascara running and things. And, and, but it's a little bit just more quiet. And it's a little bit more, you know, we just kind of uh, somber. Uh, but they would mourn and they would, they would fast. They'd not eat. You know, we have a funeral, and it'll be quiet, but there'll be food, <laughs> right? There'll be some finger food at least, you know. And no, they'd fast, or they'd, you know, they'd be mourning for different things. And so this was a very outward thing, and, and Esther was assuming something was very wrong with Mordecai. Why? Because it's very outward. It's very public that he made this thing known, and she didn't know all that, that he was grieving over, though. And by the way, when Mordecai grieved... Esther grieved. It says this, that, that, that when she, the queen, uh, then was the queen exceedingly grieved. That's in the middle of verse 4. When she heard about Mordecai, she grieved. She heard he was grieving, she grieved. And, uh, you know, that, that, that kind of tells something about Esther's character. Um, that's a good characteristic for us, by the way. When, when one weeps, we all weep. The Bible talks about that. When one rejoices, we all ought to rejoice with them. And, and uh, we ought to do that with family. We ought to do that with church family. Uh, we, we ought to be there with one another. We ought to be uh, uh, acquainted with others' uh, uh, feelings and so forth. Jesus uh, was acquainted with grief, the Bible said. And, uh, and, and it says we, we should uh, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. And we see this character of Esther. She's in the palace. She's, she's isolated and secluded from anything that could be going wrong in the kingdom. And yet she's concerned about... Uh, her cousin, her foster father, the one that raised her. So what does she do? Well, she sends Mordecai some new clothes. I heard you're in sackcloth and ashes. Here's a new set of clothes. That was actually a Persian custom. When someone would be mourning or going through a, a, a time like that, you'd send them a gift. Many times it would be a, maybe a new raiment, a new, uh, a new coat. And, uh, and that, was a, that was a big deal. You and I, we have closets full of a lot of clothes, right? Uh, we're, we're in America, and, and uh, uh, you know, clothes are a lot easier to come by. But, uh, but you know, it was, it was a big deal to get a new set of clothes, or you, know, you might only have a few that you'd cycle through. And so, so, you know, hey, cheer up, here's a new set of clothes. Mordecai, uh, in, in other words, she's saying, you know, Mordecai, don't be sad, you're, you're, whatever it is, you're mourning, you're going through this, uh, uh, here's a gift. Well, he refuses the gift. And, and, and here, here's, here's the reason why. It was an insufficient solution to the problem. You know, if you don't properly understand the problem, your solution is going to come short, short to fix it. We run into that all the time. Um, uh, you can't properly deal with the problem unless you know what the problem is. And, and isn't that what mankind tries to do with the sin problem? We try to, we try to deal with it ourselves just going to try to make sure my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, or I'm going to try to overcome it, mask it with religion, or they, they go at it, all these different things. And what's interesting is the very first time we see someone trying to cover up their sin, they're actually using clothing, Adam and Eve. And, uh, and so here she's saying, oh, there's a problem. Let's throw some clothing on it. Let's throw some covering on it. And, and you know, over and over again, we try, to, we try to maybe deal with the problem without fully really understanding what the problem is. What is the problem? Esther loves Mordecai. Esther wants to help Mordecai. She doesn't fully understand what's going on with him. So look at verse number 5. Something else must be going on if he refused this clothing. So then called Esther for uh, Hatek, one of the king's chamberlains, 
uh, whom had appointed to attend upon her. So, so this was a chamberlain that was assigned directly to her and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know uh, what it was and why it was. She sends him to know what was going on and why it was going on. By the way, um, uh, uh, Hatak is an unsaved person. She's, uh, he's a Persian chamberlain. Uh, he's, and yet he's a faithful and accurate messenger. You see, Mordecai can't come to Esther. They're separated. She's in the palace, and he's, he's just a, a mid-level uh, government employee, and, and uh, she can't go to him. She's kind of stuck there in her little bubble, in her, uh, in her protective uh, care there. So she sends a messenger, and if that messenger had not been faithful with the information, think of how the entire story would have changed. It would have been a completely different outcome. You ever play the game Telephone? What if he wasn't taking his job very seriously and he goes on behalf of Esther and, uh, and completely jumbles these messages? Because he's going to go back and forth a few times here as they, they share back and forth. Look at verse number 6. So Hatak went from forth to Mordecai under the street of the city and was before the king's gate. And uh, so he goes uh, because Esther doesn't properly understand the problem. She wants to know the what and the why. Verse 5, uh, verse, uh, yeah, verse five there, the what and the why. Uh, you know, sometimes in life, we, we want to know the, the what, but we fail to look into the why. But what is the cause? What's the underlying issue here? What's driving the situation? And so she, she sends him to go and find this out. Verse number 7. And Mordecai told him of all that happened unto him and of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasury uh, for the Jews to destroy them. So he tells them what the what is. Hey, the Jews are all going to die. He tells them uh, the why. Haman made this happen. And then he provides proof. Look at number eight. He also gave a copy of the writing of the decree that was at Shushan to destroy them and to show it unto Esther. See, Esther was unaware of this. So he gives the proof show it to show this to Esther and to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go into the king to make supplication for him. So, so, so here's the idea. He, tell, he responds with the what, he responds with the why, he gives some proof, and then he, and then he says basically this, Esther, uh, I've, thought of, I've come up with a solution. Here's what you need to do. You need to go in there uh, and, and tell your husband about this entire problem so that he can do something about it. You understand this is a mess. An entire people group are about to be exterminated. It is very troubling to Mordecai. It's troubling to all the Jews in the kingdom. Uh, and so he's got this, this uh, solution. Esther, you go in there, and you can take care of this. He's your husband, after all. Go in there and make a request uh, for the people. And to this point, Esther really was not even perceiving the severity of the problem. So now she sees the problem is bigger than she originally thought it was. Wow, it's more than just, you know, he was mourning over something. It's more than he needed a new coat. Uh, something serious is going on here. So she didn't perceive the problem. She doesn't entirely receive the solution. He gives the solution. Look at verse number 9. And Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And Esther spake unto Hatak to give him commandment unto Mordecai. So, so they're going back and forth. He's the go-between. And, and here's what you want to tell him. Verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whatsoever, whether man or woman, shall come... Uh, excuse me, whosoever whether man or woman, shall come into the king, into the inner courts, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death. 
except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come unto the king these 30 days. And so the solution, as, as he gives a solution, here's the solution, I've already thought about it, go talk to the king. Well, the solution is, is much bigger and much tougher uh, than, than thought to be. This is a big deal. Why? Well, before we give Esther, by the way, a hard time, think about this. Think about your own life. You know, we're all bent towards self-preservation. We're all, we're all bent towards, the, you know, trying to protect ourselves. So here are the reasons she gives. First of all, it's against the law. She says, there's a law. And notice what, what she says there. She says, uh, uh, this is something that everybody knows. In all the province, uh, the people know this. You don't just march into the king's presence without an invitation. You don't do that. And so, first, her first thing is, it's against the law. Secondly, I'm not an exception to the rule. In other words, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking you're his wife. Uh, uh, you know, he loves you. Surely you'll have a chance to go in there. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, and so, so she says, I'm not an exception to the rule. Third excuse, or third reason for not doing this, the stakes are too high. Even if I were to go in, what a gamble this is. If he doesn't, if he's having a bad day, and I'm like the last person on earth that he wants to see right now, I'm done. I, and it's not like a three strikes you're out kind of deal. In fact, she still had, I'm sure she still had Vashti in her mind, the, the previous queen. When the king gave a commandment to her, she didn't do it, she was removed. You're out of here, right? We don't hear from her ever again. And so, so, so this is quite a gamble. And then her fourth reason is uh, uh, success is highly improbable. What does she say? She says, uh, the king's not interested in me anymore. The honeymoon's over. I have not been invited into the king's presence in 30 days. In other words, the king has not seen his wife in 30 days. Uh, she has not seen the king in 30 days. She does not know if she's in his graces. She does not know where she stands with the king. Now, we don't know a lot of the details. We don't know why. There's a movie I saw a, a while back where they uh, kind of dramatized this story, and, uh, and they made it out to be there was a, that she was sneaking off to, uh, to, to meet with uh, her, her cousin Mordecai, and, uh, and the king assumed that there was uh, uh, some kind of, she was sneaking off for some kind of bad relationship or whatever. And, and the Bible doesn't tell us that, okay? But, uh, but whatever it is, there's, there's something. You know, 30 days to not see your wife, there's, there's a reason for it. There's something going on here that, 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 that kind of implies they may not be on the best of terms at this point. And so this is, you know, success is highly improbable. It's not likely that this would work out, this solution that Mordecai comes up with. So it's like, I know you have a plan, but it's not going to work. The solution is a lot harder than I thought it would be. So how does Mordecai deal with it? Now think about Mordecai, a loving foster father. I mean, he took her in. He raised her. He loves her. And, uh, and she just made a passionate plea. You don't understand. I don't know if she called him dad. I don't know if she had uh, uh, that kind of uh, level of relation. But whatever it is, uh, she comes to him and says, you're asking me to risk life. What does a loving father figure do? How does he respond? Look at verse number 13. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise, uh, arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom such a time as this. 
And that's the most famous verse in the entire book and a great challenge. How does this loving father look upon this with, who, 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 who took upon himself the responsibility of raising this orphan girl and taking care of her with her emotional plea, don't put me in this situation? Well, he tells her, first of all, inaction and self-preservation will not save you. If you don't do something, don't think you're going to escape it. I know what you're thinking. I'll be safe. I'm here in the palace. I'm the king's wife. I'll be safe. And he says, no, no, no. Don't think you're going to escape. Uh, your, your father's house will perish just like everybody else. You know, it kind of reminds me, Jesus said something similar. He who finds his life shall lose it, but he who loses his life for his sake shall save it. You see, you see uh, self-preservation and inaction, letting it play out, see what's going to happen, is not going to change anything. It's not going to help the situation. Second thing he points out to her is that God has a plan regardless of your involvement. Hey, if it doesn't come from you, God will raise it up somewhere. Why? Because it's based on God's promise. Well, what a way to burst our humble bubble. It doesn't all depend on you and me. God will do what He wants to do, and if, you, if you're not on board with it, He'll find someone else. All right? Oh, God's sure lucky to have me on His team. No, God can do just fine without you, okay? Let's, uh, let's bring things back down a little bit, a few notches. The reality is, uh, God had made a promise. God made a promise to Abraham. And he reiterated over and over again that, 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 that he was going to preserve them, that he was going to bless his seed, and, and so forth. He reiterates it again to David. We then call it the Davidic covenant. And over and over again, he says that he's going to take care, he's going to preserve his people. And, and the idea is, I don't know how God's going to do it, but he is going to get this done with or without you. The Bible says in Romans 11 that, that of him, to him, and through him are all things to be glory forever. Amen. The next chapter starts with, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, it's saying God's going to get things done for his glory. So because of that, you have a choice. Are you going to be on board with it? Are you going to be part of it or not? Present yourself as a living sacrifice so God can use you. So God can do something and, and bring you in on this thing. And then he said this, maybe, just maybe, God has orchestrated your life for this moment. Now that is probably the most powerful one of the statements. It just might be that God brought you, that you've been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. And here's what I mean by that. Can you imagine uh, Esther's thought process? I don't know why God has allowed all these struggles into my life. Uh, all this suffering. Um... This, this statement had to have answered a million questions for Esther. Why did my parents die? Why did I have to be raised by my cousin? Why was I taken from the loving care of my cousin and taken to be subjectified uh, by this immoral, unsaved, heathen king? Because let's face it, what was that beauty pageant? You know, we've tried to keep it kind of PG in here, but it was a very immoral thing and uh, snatched from their families against their will, 400 women taken to be a part of this thing, and Esther's picked. Can you imagine the late nights as she's there weeping? We, we think of her, oh, she's in the palace. She's the queen. We even think of it sometimes. We romanticize the story, right? A rags from riches, right? She's a little Cinderella in her rags, and the king chose her. Is that really the story? 
Is that really what she was going through? Think about this, this, this Jewish young lady, all the, all the commands, the laws of God that she had to violate to go through all that. And then she was taken against her will. The implication is that they, they sent guards to, to find all the fairest in the land and bring them to the king. And those nights that she lays awake crying, I miss my family. Those nights she lies awake that the king just sees her as an object. Think about all that. All of a sudden it's now brought to this point, this perspective, that maybe it all does have a purpose. Maybe God truly does work all things together for good to them that love him, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that God will use suffering and God will use these difficulties to, to bring about an end, to make you like Jesus. To, uh, I think about Joseph in the Old Testament when uh, his brother sold him into slavery and, and he went through all this stuff. Then he, then, he, then he rose to power and was doing well in Potiphar's house, but then he was lied about and sent into prison. And uh, more years go by and he's, he's, he's raised up second in command next to, uh, next to Pharaoh. And boy, I just fast-forwarded that story really quick. And, and uh, his brothers come along and he brings his whole family. He saves his family and, and his brothers come to him after his dad is dying. He's on his deathbed. And he passes away, and they come to him and they say, uh, Dad's dying wish is that you would forgive us and not hold our, our sin against us. And he said, Am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. We usually stop the quote there, but here's what it says. To save as it is this day much people alive. Why did Joseph go through his suffering? For the salvation of many people. Why do you and I go through suffering? We go through it to be conformed to the image of, of, of Christ. We go through it for the salvation of other people through our testimony and through God's, what God is doing. And here, Esther, we say, why did she go through it? It just might be she was brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. Why? To save her people. We okay so far this morning? I know it's a little bit different message, but uh, what an amazing story. See, it was a problem that she didn't initially perceive. There was a solution that she didn't initially receive. Thirdly, and lastly, she finally believed that she could make a difference. See, the answer was closer than she thought it would be. Look at verse number 15. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai's answer. Here's her answer to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan. Shushan was the capital city where the palace was. And fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. By the way, look at the teachable spirit of Esther and the, the humility of Esther, willing to, to put all on the line. But uh, how did Esther obey? First of all, she obeyed with a godly resolve. Trust and obey, for there is no better way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. She, she didn't try to figure it out like before. She wasn't trying to, well, what if this happens? Or what if that happens? Uh, she just says, you know, let the chips fall where they may. This is the right thing to do. And she trusted uh, the, 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 the one who raised her. She trusted uh, God's hand in the whole thing. She not only had a godly resolve, but she had a humble reliance. She made the decision, and then she would follow through three days later. She made her decision here, and she said, in three days, 
I'm going to do this thing. Uh, and, uh, and, and so what what she do in the meantime? She tells Mordecai, find all the Jews you can, have them fast, and the implication with fasting is fasting and praying. Have them fast and pray. And I'm going to do the same, and I'm going to have all my maids. She's getting unsaved people to fast and pray. And they're all there, and they're fasting and praying, and, and they're not fasting, they're not praying for this. This is not their prayer. Lord, should I do this? She already made up her decision, I'm going to do this. Now what she's praying for is, God, we need you to come through. God, we need your hand of provision. God, these are your people. God, and by the way, let me say this. When you know something's God's will, you no longer need to pray for it. You just need to pray for the carrying out of it. That, that God would do it, that God would protect. It's not God's will that any perish. And so there's this decree sent out to destroy, to wipe out all of his people. It's based on God's promise, based on God's covenant. It is the right thing to do, to pray for this. That, that she will get favor and that this will come to pass. The idea of fasting is saying, God, I have nothing. I need you more than food. I need you to come through more. It's more important to me than what's necessary for life. She had a godly resolve. She had a humble reliance. She also had total abandon. God, I'm giving myself to this. And if I perish, I perish. I don't know what's going to happen, but so be it. Completely putting it all on the line for God. Of course, we know the rest of the story. And, you know, there's someone else we can say those three statements about as well. A godly resolve, a humble reliance, total abandon. I think about the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a godly resolve. The Bible says that uh, towards the end of his ministry, that he set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing what's coming, knowing the cross. In fact, as he would talk to his disciples about it, uh, they, didn't, they weren't fully getting what he was saying. I'm going to be taken by the hands of sinful men. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be taken. And, uh, you know, they, uh, immediately after that, they start talking about, who do you think is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? It's like you guys are missing the whole thing, okay? Um, he set his face. Uh, Jesus had a humble reliance. Remember, there in the garden. God, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Or if it be possible, rather, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The angels came and they strengthened him. And then total abandon. If I perish, I perish. I think about Esther. She lived. She lived. She, she held feasts and she received gifts. And, uh, and, and you know, it happened. Happy ending, so to speak. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't get by without death. He died. He, he, his resolve led him to the cross. His total abandonment led him to save an entire people. Those that would call upon his name. Those who would believe on him. And You know, one thing I love about the story of Esther, it's the same story in Genesis. It's the same story of Exodus. The same story of every book of the Bible, that, that God loves us. God wants to rescue us in Jesus Christ. We see the redemptive plan we, in, in, in type and in, in, in pictures. And, and uh, Esther puts it all on the line to save a people group. And what I want to kind of point out is, is, is this. The, the difference one person can make when they're completely sold out, when they're completely uh, uh, re resolved to, to do what God would have them to do. God used an authority figure in her life. God used some wise counsel in her life. What you need to do. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's outside your comfort zone. I know it's outside. I know it's risky. I know uh, it may even cost you your life. But she followed, and I 
and it's an amazing, amazing story. As we, as we unpack the rest of this book, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing to see the courage and the, uh, the, the, uh, of what they went through and the urgency of, of what's going to go on as it changes things, as it turns some things around, and we'll see some, some wonderful lessons. But what a difference one person can make, being humble, being surrendered, submitted to God, and, uh, and what God might do. You know, great challenge for each of us. You know, many times the situation, uh, we, we, we look at it without the gravity sometimes. That should be, we should look at things. Sometimes we look at the solutions and we say, well, that's beyond us. But when we get resolved that I'm going to do right, I'm going to follow God, I'm going to, uh, even if it's not popular, even if no one else is going in this direction, uh, to put it on the line uh, in, in that way. What a tremendous testimony. And, you know, we need, we need Christians today that have similar resolve. What has God said? If it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And, and, uh, and, and, and we let God formulate those things. Not society. Not what's going on around us. We're not trying to be woke. But what has God said? And that needs to be what guides us and with the conviction. What a wonderful portion of the story. And I love that line. Um, Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You know, I think about our generation, the day we live today. And we could ask the same question. Who knows that we might be here in this world, 21st century America, Alaska, North Pole, Alaska, for such a time as this. Oh, we have a word of prayer and then we'll head next door.